Season 2 of Cyber 24 is presented by our friends at Valcom. Valcom is a Utah-based IT solutions and services provider with drive for getting IT right. From ironclad security to computing and beyond, Valcom's 35-plus years means they have the experience and expertise to help your business from desktop to data center. At Valcom, you get much more than a dedicated IT retailer. They become an extension of your IT team. Whether you're a startup or an enterprise, Valcom has the technical sales and engineering expertise to make your business more effective and more productive. To learn more about Valcom's end-to-end -end solutions, the technology vendors they partner with, and to sign up for upcoming events, visit their website at vlcmtech.com. That's vlcmtech.com. Cyber 24 is supported by the Utah Department of Public Safety, as well as the Utah Department of Technology Services and the Utah Attorney General's Office. In addition, the University of Utah's Kem C. Gardner Policy Institute is where we record this podcast each week. At the Kem C. Gardner Policy Institute, they're dedicated to helping Utah make informed decisions. We're also proud to have the support of Secuvant, a Utah-based company providing business-enabled cyber risk and management. Every week on this program, these great partners will provide expertise and insight to help business and civic leaders better understand the challenge of cybersecurity and how to keep your organization safe. We appreciate your support. All right, welcome to the Cyber 24 podcast. I'm your host, Marty Carpenter. Our most recent episode, we looked at the federal government shutdown and how that was impacting the nation's cybersecurity efforts. That podcast, worth a listen, especially as we now find ourselves about mm, 10 days away from the next potential shutdown of the federal government. Uh, so I guess the same issues we discussed back then could be the same issues that would pop up. Uh, either way, worth a listen. That, that pod also worth a listen uh, because our guest was Mike Hussey, uh, who is the executive director of the Utah Department of Technology Services, or DTS, as we'll refer to it frequently on this podcast. And hey, we're lucky enough to have Mike Hussey back with us. <laughs> it's been like two weeks since we recorded that one. We've had some scheduling issues with other guests, and, and we got to this uh, this topic, and you were the right man to come back in. So, Mike, thanks for being here again. Friend of the pod. Friend of the pod. Like thank, thank you, Marty. Thank you for having me today. Uh, we're also joined. I think this is your first time back this season, but friend of the pod a as well, um, Utah's Chief Information Security Officer, Phil Bates. Thank you. Yeah. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. Uh, all right. Let's jump into our topic uh, for today. Just about two weeks ago, something happened for the first time ever, and I don't think it really drove any headlines, which is kind of... I, I guess somewhat par for the course for cybersecurity issues, right? It's, uh, you know, important things happen, and hopefully the right techie people <laughs> are following along and getting that news. But it, it never seems – it rarely seems to sort of elevate – uh, to the level of like political discussion and other things that mm -hmm. tend to distract us in the 24-hour news cycle. Uh, but this popped up, and it, it, it caught my eye, and it's something that we want to talk about today. Let me read from this uh, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, otherwise known as CISA, their blog, uh, and this was actually written by the director of that office, uh, Christopher Krebs. Uh, the headline on this blog, Why CISA Issued Our First Emergency Directive, which goes back to my point of just a moment ago. 
uh, how many people knew that they had never issued one or that they then issued this one, but it should catch your eye a little bit that they have. So reading from his, his blog post, he says, On Tuesday, January 22nd, I released Emergency Directive 19-01, Mitigate DNS Infrastructure Tampering, directing federal civilian agencies to take a series of immediate actions in response to a global domain name system or DNS hijacking campaign. This is the first emergency directive issued by the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, under authorities granted by Congress in the Cybersecurity Act of 2015. And we took this action after carefully considering the current and potential risk posed to federal agencies. Okay, before we get too far into the weeds, we've got some experts at the table. Talk to us about what CISA is. I've kind of read it out a couple times, but what, what does CISA actually do? So at the national level, we have several agencies that are responsible for uh, cybersecurity. We receive this information down through what's called NCHIC. So that's the National Cybersecurity Information Center. And they get feeds from a lot of different. This would be one of the agencies that can pick up intelligence out there and feed that to them. We also have U.S. CERT, MSISAC, and some other ones that just are collectors of information, feed it up through there, and then it's redistributed down through a lot of different channels. So we got this from U.S. CERT. We also got this from NCHIC, and we also got it from MSISAC. So we get it through multiple Acronyms. <laughs> and this, this one is alarming, and that's why I think we saw it come down I've so many channels. I've been out of state government for like two years now, and I'm just a little atrophied when it comes yeah. to acronyms. Acronym I don't, soup, yes. They don't roll off my tongue the way they used to. So that's a lot of acronyms. Uh, okay, so we'll continue. So um, for those that don't know what DNS is, DNS is like the phone book for the Internet. So if I want to go to <laughs> a site... For those who don't know what a phone book is, <laughs> we, we used to print up a list of everybody's phone numbers so you could look them up alphabetically for our younger listeners. Okay, it's like the phone book for the <laughs> You go to an app now, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, if I want to go to utah.gov, if, if I type in utah.gov, the internet doesn't know where that is or how to get there. Mm -hmm. So it's going to take that utah.gov, it's going to send it to a name server and say, hey, what is the IP address of this? It will give it the IP address back, and now that it's got that, it knows how to get there. That's how that works. So it's similar to like a phone book. You've got to know the phone number to be able to call somebody. I yeah. can't – I can speak the name in, yeah. in my phone now these days, I guess, but there is actually a phone yeah. number behind that. Like, like it calls the switchboard, right? And exactly. For those people who have ever watched Andy <laughs> Griffith, Sarah plugs in the, the cable into the other outlet, and boom, next thing you know, you're talking to the person you want to talk to. Exactly. All right, so there, there's this directory then uh, that you have to call into. Um, tell me what these bad guys did that then alerted the federal government to say, this is a problem. How, how is this dangerous? So one of the things we don't know is, is how they identified the administrators that were controlling these environments. So mm -hmm. someone's got to go in there and maintain this phone book. And they were able to discover who that person was, find out their username, and then were able to get their password. They could do that through some phishing activities. Um, they may have been able to brute force it, which is basically having the username and then trying just a dictionary of yeah. passwords until they get yeah. one that passes. We're not sure what way they probably they tried password first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> one, one, two, three, four, four five. <laughs> All those super uh, common passwords. Uh, another way they you, could get can it I, is. Can I just stop you on one thing? You say you say this person is it a? It, it can't possibly be a person. I mean, each, I'm thinking each, of like the Oracle on on entity, the Matrix now. Okay, each entity takes care of their own DNS. Gotcha. So like State of Utah, we have administrators, probably three or four of them, that mm -hmm. manage the utah.gov domain. Now, what are their names and passwords? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they're, well, the name of their dog. Yeah. <laughs> we're changing some of the practices we do because yeah. um, in those domain records, you can look them up, 
and a lot of people have been putting who that person is that administers it. Mm -hmm. So you've just gotten them half the way. They've got the username. Now they've got to do is figure out the password. Gotcha. So we're going to go to some more generic like DNS services at utah.gov instead of giving them the actual person's name. We want those people to be important but not famous. Yes. (laughs) And it's a problem when they become famous because their importance then becomes a liability. Yes. Yes. Now there's different types of records that DNS dishes up. So one is just an address record like utah.gov. Another one is like an MX record, and that tells you where the mail service is at. So there's different types of records that exist in this. If I can get in and administer those, I can redirect the traffic to where you don't know it's going. So just an example, let's say we've got a service at utah.gov that you're going to make payments at. I can take that website, redirect it to a site that I own, and have it forwarded from there back to Utah, and I can strip off everything that's come through there. Mm-hmm. Um, if I've got access to that domain, I've all have access to the certificates, and that allows me to decrypt any of that traffic as well and read what's in there. So this is really, really devastating if someone's able to get into an organization and do this to them. Yeah. And, w- and one thing, Phil, that you mentioned was the MX record. Imagine if I was able to go in and Cyber24 reroutes all of Cyber24's email through my mail server, inspect it, pass it on to you so you have no idea that I'm in the middle reading all of your email as it's passing through me. And, and then, then you're taking the credit card off. And then I, <laughs> yeah, so those can, I'll take those for <laughs> yeah. me. But, but yeah, you could, in theory, uh, han- handle all of your email exchanged uh, through a third party that's in between you and you have no idea that it's happening and yet they're inspecting all of that data. So imagine a password reset that you normally click on a link. If I could intercept that as it's coming to me, I could intercept Marty Carpenter at Cyber24 and say, oh, uh, let me let me reset your passwords, intercept that link, go out and re- wreak a lot of havoc because now I own your email as well. Yeah. So a lot of uh, potential for disasters out there. Is In doing that, I would imagine that the, the quote-unquote bad guys in this don't want to be detected. They want to just sort of take control and have nobody know. There's no yeah. spiking of the football here so much <laughs> saying, hey, we did this. It's... I've got this, and nobody knows about it. And the longer nobody knows about it, the better off Absolutely. I am yeah. uh, as a bad guy. So the worse off we are as the good guys, I guess, is the way to put it. Is so that right? In the past, we've seen them try to do things like this where they'll stand up a site similar to utah.gov, mm-hmm. look exactly the same. And when you redirect there, they'll try to get you to sign in and grab your username and password. That is going to become obvious at some point because people are going to realize they're not getting into anything and it's not happening. This kind of a, an attack would be much more stealthy because they can just monitor it, and it would take a while before you discovered that that was happening. And that's my next question, then. How do you find out that somebody has done this? Is it just a dumb luck situation? Do you, if you are vigilant and going to check on something in specific, can you find or detect that somebody has has perpetrated this type of attack? So typically what we will do is whoever's doing this a lot of times is going to try to monetize that information. Mm-hmm. And so we'll detect it being sold out there on the dark web. And then because of the format that it's in and the kind of data, we can detect where it came from. So typically, you'd have the FBI or somebody coming to your organization saying, hey, we're seeing a lot of this for sale out on the dark web. Do you have a problem with your organization? Because we can kind of tell that's where it's coming from. Yeah. Um, This almost seems, I don't know, maybe it's not counterintuitive. But we talk a lot on this podcast in various topics that, hey, cyber attacks are getting more sophisticated. And so cybersecurity has to get more sophisticated. And this just sort of seems like 
you know, maybe to talk uh, just on the heels of a defensive first Super Bowl <laughs> that everybody was ready to play cover two and have all the great coverages and disguise their their coverages, and then they got beat by a draw play that just went right up the mm-hmm. middle. Is that is that sort of the equivalent here that they just tried something simple but outside of the box? Uh, you know, we're seeing them shift the the attack profile a lot because we've been defending things. So you know, they used to hack systems and now we've got systems hard and it's harder to get into so then they're going after users and using the email as a, a way to get in there and try to get credentials and things so as we keep blocking things and we get better at protecting they're having to find new avenues to find a weakness and this dns is kind of a new one when we come back we're going to talk about the steps the federal government decided to take and how those steps relate to your organization whether you're running the state's department of technology services or your business or a local government entity whatever that might be back with more on the cyber 24 podcast presented by valcom right after this as the volume and complexity of endpoint attacks has continued to grow security solutions have struggled to keep up the pace the result much of today's security is reactive and slow and that's not what you want to be To combat this, Valcom security partner Sophos is equipped with Intercept X, a deep learning neural network that detects both known and unknown malware without relying on signatures. All right, so what does that mean? Simply put, Intercept X can stop the widest range of endpoint threats, equipping businesses with a predictive rather than a reactive approach to protecting against unknown threats. Stop attacks in their tracks with Valcom and Sophos. Learn more about Intercept X in Valcom's on-demand webinar at vlcmtech.com slash interceptx. That's vlcmtech.com slash interceptx. $300 million. That's how much money the cyber breach at FedEx cost the company, all because they were not insured for cyber breach losses. So if you're a business owner of any size, you have to ask yourself, could my business survive a hit like that? I'm guessing the answer is no. The fact is, over half a million small to medium-sized businesses will close their doors as a result of a cyber event. So what should you do to protect your business? Talk to the cyber liability professionals at Hayes Companies. At Hayes Companies, policy placement is only one step in an overall risk management approach to manage your firm's cyber liability exposure. They design a program specifically for you, customized to your business priorities. For more information, contact Dave Whitworth, 801-580-5501. That's 801-580-5501. Or visit HayesCompanies.com. That's H-A-Y-S Companies.com. Secuvant is a leading network security company specializing in creative, customized solutions that meet the needs of small and medium-sized businesses. They offer a wide range of services, everything from managed security and virtual CISO consulting to cyber risk advisory and data breach recovery assistance. No matter what your specific security requirements are or what your comfort level is with IT in general, Secuvant will map your cybersecurity program to the business areas that are relevant to you. Everything from brand and reputation to legal liability to intellectual property to business disruption and so much more. For more information, call 1-855-SECUVANT or visit secuvant.com. That's S-E-C-U-V-A-N-T dot com.
All right, welcome back to the Cyber 24 podcast presented by Valcom. Marty Carpenter joined by Phil Bates. He's the Chief Information Security Officer with the State of Utah. And Mike Hussey, who is the head of the Department of Technology Services. Great first segment. Let's uh, jump right back into this one. Talking about the uh, first uh, the, the first uh, emergency directive issued by CISA. And, and great stuff in the first segment, but I want to jump into sort of what are, what steps is the federal government taking, and then how does that uh, potentially play in for for businesses here? So one of the things that they that they outlined is they say uh, the director of of the CISA says um, here are the f- he lists out four things that they've done. Let's just walk through each one of them. So number one, um, v- his counsel is verify. Uh, well, l- l- let me say this. Let me back up just a little bit first. Here's what he says he knows, and I thought this was really interesting. I wanted to get into this first. Here are the things that they know. So far, he said, we know an active attacker is targeting government organizations of concern, but like expected, right? Um, We know that they're using techniques that aren't especially innovative. We talked about that a little bit in the last segment. And we know that this type of attack isn't something many organizations monitor or have tight controls around. That's the concerning part, right? Because it's not just organizations is pretty broad. That's companies. That's everybody. Then he gets into the four things that they're doing. I want to just walk through those uh, with you and get your commentary on each one. He says the the first one is verify their DNS records to ensure that they're resolving as attended and not redirected elsewhere. Why is that important? So, and this is why that's number one is you want to see if you've had an incident. So this is where you're going to detect if someone's been in your DNS and been creating records. Yeah. So if you get an enterprise the size of Utah, we've got thousands and thousands and thousands of entries in that, that, yeah. that domain space. So the first thing we look for is we look for any DNS entry pointing to an address that we don't own. Right. So that's the first place we're going to look and go out and validate that. So we hand those off to our auditors and have the auditors go out and check each and every one of those and validate that's a legitimate Utah site. And can you give me some idea of like how often – that not how often you check necessarily. I don't want to give away any any secrets, yeah. but like, do you, are we talking like you get ten a month where someone's tried to redirect something, or is it ten thousand? I have no idea what the scope would be of that. So we have not found that happening in ours yet. Okay, zero. So we're going through the audit process. So right it was now. an under whatever yeah. I would have guessed. Would <laughs> <be an> under. <laughs> yeah, zero. Safe on the under. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Knock on. <laughs> continue that way. But we'll have Utah.gov addresses point to like we have a click at campaign for highway patrol yeah and they'll go to a commercial provider like amazon and put a site out there we'll have to put a dns record in pointing to an address that we don't own so that's one that would hit this audit list that they would go out and look at gotcha we're not as concerned about addresses we control in the state because we have a lot of infrastructure there that monitors the address space and what occurs in it it's when we're directing someone to a spate or a site outside of utah we need to validate that's a legitimate yeah, site. essentially meaning you want to make sure that if they if they think they're sending you to Amazon, that you guys are in fact in fact going to, to legitimate yeah. and not just sending them to you know someone who's who's done this who's exactly done that makes sense. All right, the second uh, Mike, do you have something there? No, I was okay. just going to say like Hackers RS at Amazon is yeah. <laughs> not a good place to go. So you might want to disguise that a little bit <laughs> <Yes>. better. So, <laughs> Hacker dot Amazon There you right? go. Um, and Amazon spelled with like a Y. Or yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. So the number two step that they put out was update DNS account passwords. Passwords, 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 right? Like, it, if anything from this podcast, what we learn is that we should change our password like every three hours. Yeah. <laughs> no matter what. <laughs> Come up with a unique Almost. password every three hours. It seems like passwords are always critical. They are. And so that that's the first step is now we're, we're looking at if they've been there and if that looks clean, the next thing we're going to do is say, did they have the potential of getting in? So that's why they're going through the exercise of changing passwords of people that can get in here. 
on the off chance they've already got one and haven't gotten in there yet, we're going to change the passwords to make sure that they can't get in there. Yeah, and because two passwords are better than one, the third step is add multi-factor authentication. Exactly, and with that multi-factor, what that does is give you an out-of-band, they call it, um, authentication technique. So basically, if I've got a username and password that's in the DNS system and they compromise that and get it, I've got this changing number out there that they can't guess by getting in there that if I get signing in with that, they're going to get hit with that. So that's a great way to – and we recommend that on everything, not only a DNS, but any system that you have. If you've got banking records, if your email has that capability, turn it on. Mm -hmm. Um, The fourth thing that they mentioned there, monitor certificate transparency logs. This is probably the first of the three steps that hasn't been, oh, people should do this with, you know, the principle is the same and other things, but – Tell me what this is, monitor certificate transparency logs. So we mentioned this just briefly at the first of it. If they were able to redirect traffic through another host and I'm monitoring what comes through there, so I'm trying to detect what kind of information's in there, let's say it's payment information, but it's being encrypted. If I was able to take your certificate and install it out there on that system, now I can decrypt everything there and read it like it's plain text. So that's important to see where your certs have been and where they've been installed at. And that's what that is so that they that's how you can decrypt things. So that, that's kind of the keys to unlocking that encrypted traffic. Yeah, and uh, there are reasons for um, non-governmental agencies to be concerned about this. The director himself writes in, the, in his blog post, while the emergency directive only applies to federal civilian executive branch agencies that are not part of the intelligence community, the directive includes common sense guidance and mitigation steps any organization can take to prevent DNS infrastructure tampering. We encourage anyone with questions to reach out, and they've got the links, and we'll put those on our website as well. So even as we're talking about this sort of in a governmental framework, this does apply to everybody. Everybody. Yeah. <laughs> everybody who's on the web anyway. A- anybody that's using email, anybody that does web business, any of that is going to be potentially compromised by this. Yeah. One other thing you brought up uh, in an earlier discussion uh, that we had just off mic um, during the break was that uh, this directive coincided with the rollout of something called eDNS and that there may be some confusion. So first, I guess, walk us through what eDNS is and then um, I'll clarify the confusion (laughs) if there is. eDNS is an enhancement of DNS services that the industry has been working on for years and years and years. They're finally pushing this out and rolling it out February 1st, which was really close to the timing of this. It was like a week after this, right? Or eight days, eight, nine days after. Yeah. So it it came to... The 21st or 22nd was when that directive came out, and then the 1st of February following it nine days later is when this came out. But this is something that's been in in the works for a long time. All the vendors are trying to get their systems ready so that when that February 1st comes along, it doesn't break anything. And because there was so much activity on that, some people got it confused with this other DNS attack, completely different things. So one of them is attack of your DNS by whoever this adversary is trying to do harm. This is an industry upgrade, the eDNS thing, which is completely separate from that activity. So don't get confused by the two. And, and if I <laughs> upgrade to eDNS, it does not prevent them from doing this attack. So eDNS doesn't do anything for getting your passwords hardened or getting two-factor or auditing your records. It just provides a more yeah. efficient DNS lookup, and there's some more fields they can add to it as well. Great conversation, great information, great insight. Thanks so much uh, to both of you for, for being here and sharing your insight with us. Well, thank you for having us. All right. All right, as we wrap up today's show, we want to thank our presenting partners at Valcom. You can find them online at vlcmtech.com. We also want to thank our supporting partners, 
University of Utah's Kempsey Gardner Policy Institute. That's where we recorded this show and where we do it each week. Our friends at Secuvant, not to mention our great partners at the Utah Department of Technology Services, the Utah Department of Public Safety, and the Utah Attorney General's Office. A reminder, you can find us online at cyber24.us or on Twitter at cyber24 underscore or on Facebook, just search cyber24. That's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. I'm Marty Carpenter.